I'd like to welcome to True House Stories a very good friend of mine. And when I say a friend of mine, I really mean this. He's a great guy. He's probably opened more clubs than I know. <laughs> He's the opening club guy every time you hear about it in New York. It's like they bring Ralphie D'Agostino in to open the room. Ralphie kind of gives it what they call baptism by fire with Ralphie D. I'd like to welcome the True House Stories from around the world, right here in New York, from Brooklyn, New York, Ralphie D. <laughs> Ralphie. You're the best, brother. Thanks, brother. I want to ask you, first of all, before we get into the first question, how you doing? You know, tell everybody what's going on in your world. How you <sighs> up with COVID and everything? I ask everybody this. Well, uh, I I usually tell the story, and a lot of people, you know, uh, you get the doubters, and then you get the people that are, okay, that's great. Uh, I was probably one of the first people to get COVID. I don't want to say the first, first people, but at least... Of uh, the, the, the people that I know, uh, it was actually my last live gig that I did. I played in um, in Prague, New Year's Eve from 20, uh, 2019 into twenty twenty, and uh, it was at the beginning of when they were first talking about it. There was no pandemic; it wasn't anything like that. And I remember getting on a plane, um, connecting in London, and you know, you're ready to sit down. You got your seatbelt on. And like there's the, I'm sitting in an aisle seat and there's a lady with two kids and they are coughing their brains out. And I've been on enough planes to know that when I see somebody like coughing like that, it's inevitable with the recycle there. But now it's a little bit better because of the technology. So what I do, I would take my jacket and put my jacket like, you know, my head away. So it doesn't blow this way. But unfortunately... Three quarters of the flight, that's all they did was cough. I think they gave, she was with two little kids. They gave them Benadryl or something, knocked them out. And then she stopped coughing after a while. But like anything else, you're not thinking. I get off the plane. And every year in January, I get a full-blown flu all the time. I take flu shots, but I still get it. But it, the flu just, uh, it's like a regular flu. You get, uh, I get, uh, what do you call, uh, uh, tightness in the chest coughing, that kind of stuff. So I felt that way. Now, my doctors, you can't go nowhere. To, 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 what do you call it? The closing has just started. So I go through the uh, through Zoom with my doctor. And she says, yeah, it's no problem. Okay, I'm going to give you a Z-Pack. I'm going to give you Mucinex and Tylenol. And I take it. And I remember like two days into it, three days into it, I couldn't get out of bed. I mean, this is a flu. It's just like the worst kind of flu. My ankles, my arms. Uh, I, I was just like somebody, just like I've never run over by a truck. Long story short, um, I kept asking her, is it no COVID? And she says, uh, well, we can't tell. You're not going to an emergency room because people going to an emergency room are coming out. So I'm like, okay. So I waited three, four days later, a little bit of fever, and then I went away. I'm like, okay, fine. I didn't get to go to a COVID center. The first time they had a test, the uh, the nose test I went, came up negative. And then I had to wait for the first, first antibody test. And um, I had asked my doctor, you know, what should I expect? Is this three, um, three scenarios? One, you never had COVID. Two, you have COVID now. 
and you can transmit it. Three, best of all, you had it and you passed it already. Your body, uh, your immune system killed it. And that's what I ended up getting. My immune system killed it. And I've had to take, since that time, six COVID tests and five antibody tests for various reasons. I had surgery in my mouth, uh, colonoscopy. Uh, See everybody? See what I just said? The first guy to open the club. The first guy. Oh, yeah, the club. yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Figures. When we he said this to us, I said, get out of here. You Everybody else said, no way. He calls up. Guess what? And at the at the end of this, now, as of right now, what is it, 209, Wednesday, April 14th, I still have antibodies. 14 months later, I'm one of two people in my entire doctor's practice that has uh, uh, antibodies. And now after technology and all this stuff, they wanted me to go give plasma. And uh, I was supposed to do that, but I forget what happened. First, they wanted me to go down to Florida to go do something. Listen, you know, if I got to go see, you telling me I got to go save somebody's life, that's a different story. But just to go down, it was still experimental at the time. But now, um, uh, I'll tell my, you what it changed. Yeah, well, yeah, that was the whole thing. But now I still I still have the antibodies. And, uh, I haven't gotten a vaccine. <laughs> I, my doctor says there's no reason for me to get a vaccine. Now, listen, there's, there's the conspiracy theorists and there's all these other people talking about getting it and not getting it. For me, I just want the world to heal. We need everybody to go back to the way it was or somewhat. So I'm just a little bit worried now if I got to go to fly somewhere. I don't have a, 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 a vaccination certificate. Are they going to let me on a plane? I mean, they have to. There's got to be some way. The only thing I'm worried about is hopefully maybe it doesn't happen two or three years from now. I grow another ear or I get another nostril in my nose. You never know. No, seriously, you never know. But I'm not going to try to worry about that. I just want to move forward. Everybody's had a hard, a hard, uh, hard time dealing with this, no matter. Who you are, whether you had anti- antibodies or not, good people passing away. It's just, it's crazy. It's been a tough year for a lot of people. Yeah. But thank God, Ralphie, you're still here going strong, brother. Yeah, I know. Amazes me sometimes. You're, you're, meant, you're meant still to do something amazing. We don't know what that is yet, but we, but I do want yeah. something. Who would ever think it would just be all of this time, you know, my career to speak that so to speak that was encapsulated into three separate uh, eras or times and the first era keeps regenerating itself and comes back oh, it's and huge never goes away yeah it's like it's like a curse it's a good curse and a, a bad and good curse at the same time yeah. it's like you know okay but we'll get into that in a minute um Everybody always knows before you even get into the whole Sinaiqiba thing, we got to ask just like everybody else. The first question I always ask is, you know, how does music find the young Ralphie when you're a kid? Hmm. Okay. Um, when I was very, very young, first of all, let me explain this. And, and this is really important. I don't know. You know, I always watch the people that you interview. Um, I feel I, I, I just wanted to um, put something else out there that a lot of people don't know um everybody has issues in their families when you know you're very young and unfortunately i was born into a a a family that had a lot of um 
a lot of issues. Uh, my mother and father fought constantly. Uh, when you're a little kid, you're in a crib and your mother and father are fighting amongst each other and they don't realize that, you know, you're, you're messing with your kid's head. I, I don't blame them. I'm not going to blame anybody. What happened, happened. It was a long time ago. But that made me grow up into um, uh, very, very, um, you know, just looking. I, I, I just wanted to feel safe and I had a safe haven actually where I'm living right now, which I'm actually sitting in the house that I was born, which is very rare for a lot of people, but um, things unfolded in my life. I'll explain later. But anyway, uh, I feel very comfortable where I am because of, um, you know, everybody's gone now. I'm the only person that's left. All my grandparents and mothers and fathers. My bro- actually, my brother is still alive. I, I still have, uh, you know, my son, but I'm just talking about the beginning. Um, it, it was it was kind of a rough going, but I always noticed that I think the first, 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 inclination about music to me was i remember seeing believe it or not the beatles on the ed sullivan show and i mean i was like i don't know four and it's just it wasn't that that i remembered the most it was the aftermath of now you're going to kindergarten and you go into like a discount store and they would have beatles buttons and uh beatles books and and listening to the music on the radio. And I also had a, um, uh, I had a, a very big yard that I used to play in. I was an only child at the beginning. And uh, I had a pool in the summer. And I would always go back there and have a radio. My mother, my grandmother, my grandfather, you know, they had wine. You know, the old Italians had the, the grape vines and the tomatoes and all of that stuff. And it was always a radio playing. And I always listen to music it just kind of soothed me it just did something to me i felt very um comfortable listening to it and you know like the first things i heard were like the beatles and then motown and all through the 60s all that am radio stuff and um uh as i got older i would go to the store of course you're from the school my mother would take me to school and it was like a like sort of like a candy store slash bargain store slash warehouse uh um what do you call harbor store and in the back they had uh records you know little slots in the thing with record one two three four five six seven it was a little sheet and i remember records i don't know how much they were and oh can i you know buy this because my mother had a they called it a victrola (laughs) and i I forget what she bought. She bought me like, I don't know, please, please me or, or, or some kind of Motown stuff. And I started to collect stuff. And I just noticed that everything sounded better. And my thoughts were better in my head when there was music involved. And, you know, when you come from a, a home of, of yelling and screaming and, and stuff, you wanted to try to get away from that. I mean, I was loved, but it wasn't the, the love that you would expect. Oh, I love you son, like birthday parties and stuff like that. But, um, it, that's, that was my upbringing up until, uh, well, this actually started at the beginning of my life and I still carry today, but, um, I would say up until about, you know, 10 years old or whatever, I started, um, getting interested in being a musician, being on a stage, being, you know, I didn't know how to play guitar. It was a little too complicated. So I took very easily to the drums. Drums were just you know, something wipeout when it came out. Oh my God. And it was funny. My corner had a, uh, 
a ice cream parlor where these older kids used to hang out and you would go in there and they would have records that you, that they would, you know, you would win. They would give you a ticket when you got ice cream. And I never forgot the number, 74777. And I remember going around the corner and I looked and I won the 45 of Wipeout. It was on Dot Records. And Wipeout was like, if you knew how to play Wipeout in a chair, you, you were like, that was like the greatest thing. So that's what got me into the drums and everything. And um, yeah, that's for the first like 10 years of my life. That's what gravitated me towards that. And then, you know, watching the Ed Sullivan show and then seeing the Rolling Stones and Tommy James and Shondell's uh, the, the Young Rascals. I started figuring out that I was attracted to women at a very, very early age. I think the first crush I had on a girl was in second grade and it was a song or, or fourth grade. And the song was called Carrie Ann by um, the Hollies. And this girl's name was Carrie. I remember it. And just like the music, you know, it's like great. And I, I, I pictured myself being on a stage, being a drummer and this girl looking at me like this going, Oh, he's so cute. That was my thing because it kind of says, well, I can, I can only, I can do what I like and I can have a social life with it. And it just, it was like your package. And that's how I was up until, well, you know, until I started into the next phase. So your question was, how does music find me? That's how I mean, about the first 10 years of my life. How do you do the hollies and the drums, baby, and playing Wipeout? Yeah. Yes. Which, of course, you go to school playing drums. And you got to realize, everyone, in those days, there was no DJing yet. It was all about live bands. Yeah. Live yeah. All about bands. So and I wanted to become, you know, uh, um, the next thing in my mind was, okay, I got to get a set of drums. And I got them when I was like 12. And I started, now the real course, I used to practice, believe it or not, on pillows. Okay. Pillows drumsticks and just go through the motions of it. And, uh, and I took to playing the drums and I, and I got it to the point. And then that next phase was, okay, I'm going to try you know, get into a rock band and stuff. But, um, Something came into my life that changed that later on, which, you know, that was the role that I was in. But basically, it all leads to music being golden, to the golden road. Okay, so here's the beautiful thing, guys, about today's show. Lately, we've been able to get everyone who has pictures yeah. to yeah. hold them together. And we have pictures to go along with what he's about ready to tell us the inside track of how this whole thing happened in Brooklyn and it's a pretty incredible story for me being a counter a part of that I would have been I would have died to be a part of it but I guess when you're in the middle of it you don't see it like that and he's explained this to us many times that when he was inside you don't feel that way because you're in it. But when you're on the outside looking through the glass, like if you're looking to the store and you want that item, it's like, wow, oh, my God. But he'll tell you the whole other side of it. So, Ralphie, of course, high school comes. You're cool and you're hanging out with the chicks and the whole deal. Actually not. No. And then I just went to an all-boys high school. <laughs> and the thing was, I had thought when I was coming out of junior high school, my father, rest in peace, was uh, loved 
uh, electronics, and he was very much into televisions. And and back then, televisions were tubes. It was very hardly any transistor work, but um, he was always fixing TVs. And now, if you connect radios into it, a radio is electronic fixing radios but it wasn't i thought that's what i wanted but it was the music that i really wanted and when i started going uh, coming out of uh i was in junior high i got into junior high school and i realized I was like you know um i think you want to go for this it was actually radio and television pro uh programming which later on became just electronics but um i uh, i Halfway through, I kind of realized that, you know, it was cool and everything, but it wasn't, it wasn't what I wanted to do. And what I wanted to do had to do, had to be around music. So what I thought the radio and television thing was going to do, it, it, it was like a bridge to it. And that's what ended up happening. But um, yeah, it was, it was being the music. And, you know, I'm in uh, junior high school. Everything was about music. Uh, where I was, I can tell you where I was at the time. I can tell you what I was doing at the time. I can tell you how I was feeling. There were certain songs that, again, you know, growing up like growing up like me, uh, being uh, very very sheltered and very introverted. Believe it or not, I'm like the last thing I am now is introverted. But back then I was. I had to gravitate to things that were safe for me. I would never gravitate out. It's like, you know, when you cross the street when you're a kid, you only cross when, well, I would never cross the street unless I was able to and I was told to. So, of course, a fear of something happening. When you have fears at a very young age, it stays with you all your life. But I'll get to that later. But, um, yeah, so now we're in uh, junior high school. And what was your connection? The question again? Where we where we are? What's the question? We're moving into the high school, junior high. We said yeah. you went to all boys school. Yes, we're working our way to where you start to begin to find this music. Yes. Okay. What had happened was, uh, I always stood in. I stood in my neighborhood was a very rough neighborhood. Um, I was the youngest out of the kids in the neighborhood. And unfortunately for me, the kids in the neighborhood were not, 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 not too nice, put it that way. Um, we all grew up, and it was all Italian and everything like that, but it's just, we were just, it's like, I don't know, explaining to other people, but people that lived in New York and people that lived in Brooklyn would understand that, you know, you get to a point in your life when you're a kid, you're playing, you're playing uh, cowboys and robbers, and doing that. And all of a sudden, the the thing with girls comes, and and you get a little bit mature, and now you start looking at things that you never looked at before. As far as, wow, look at this girl. This girl's nice, and this, and then it starts changing to sex. So the little part of you, the innocent part, leaves. And I just got involved with the wrong people. The competition, uh, and the competition begins. Yeah, and I was always at the bottom. I got more beatings than you could even imagine. And that's just for my father. I mean, I was so scared of my father. I would avoid, no matter what I did, and my father had his own business, he would be out, you know, and um, he would come home. I would be like, hey, got to be a certain way. 
sit at that table, be a certain way. And God forbid, he asked me about something that I couldn't answer. That was a answer that he would be okay with. Can I remember my mother and father's marriage was a train wreck every single day. It was about one thing or another. It was quiet. My father would come home. My mother had, uh, my mother was an agoraphobic. She, I don't know if she got it postpartum after I was born or whatever, but um, she couldn't leave the house. You know, I think about it now. It's a real shame. But um, she would only go like to the PTA meeting, go to the corner, go to the church, but get in a car and go somewhere. Never, never. And my father was very frustrated over that. And uh, it caused a lot of problems. And when you're living downstairs, you know, I'm, I live on a t- where I live now, but on the top floor, we lived, my, my parents, the middle floor and bottom floor was my grandmother, who was my mother's, uh, my grandmother, my mother's mother. And she hated my father. So every day there was a battle going on. So my mother and father would scream. I would get run downstairs. And then my grandmother would in Italian say, watch it, the son of a bitch and all that, you know. And when you're a little kid, it's, 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 it's very, very hard in the brain. So again, I had the safety was with certain people and my this is my safety zone. So when you grow up like that and it's, it's constant being scared, I needed an out and music was the out. So when I was a little bit older, when I was like 12, 13, 14, um, my friends had older brothers and, and the older brothers were the, uh, the, the precursor, the generation before me, the ones that, um, I, I think it was the draft generation because I missed the draft by three years. So these were the guys that they got drafted. They didn't go. It was like, fuck you. We ain't going nowhere. They were staying in the neighborhood. And then back then, if there were MPs coming or something during the war, they would alert them and they would go hard. Their MPs would go to the neighborhood. They didn't see them and they would leave. So these guys um, all had, back then, it was Cadillacs. Everything was Cadillacs or, or, or poor men, like a Monte Carlo. And they, they had true spokes on there. They were really nice cars. And part of it was the sound systems in the cars. Now, me, I'm into rock at the time, and I'm into, like, Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, uh, you know, stuff like that, radio kind of stuff. And I'm still in, the, in that rock band phase. But I remember on Sundays, my friend Mickey Guarino, rest in peace, his parents owned uh, the funeral parlor across the street from me, and he had, like, five brothers. They were all over. And um, they had a station wagon. It was a 1974 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser. And it had true spokes on it. The, the, the station wagon was used to go pick up dead bodies in the morgue. In the morgue. So sometimes like, we were going. It was like, there's nothing. I grew up in a funeral parlor with just, oh, just talk about sick shit. Anyway, in that car, they had, a, they had big speakers in there. And I always remember it was an eight track play, and there were these red tapes in there, heavy. And. Oh, okay. Heavy. And there were red tapes, red eight track. There you go. That. That right there, I don't know if that anybody, probably Rick, who actually was the person who made these tapes, mm-hmm. uh, still had that, has these, but they were at the time, what, what numbers are on here? I think it's like 14 or something. This is like one, two, and three, you're talking. Volume um, 16, I think. Volume 14 or 17, I can't really tell, but 16, no, volume 16 and 17. Yeah, and if you, if you look at the music on there, you can tell, okay, when you're young and in love, yeah, you're looking at the end of 74, beginning of 75. 
that's when these tapes were out. Now, you have to understand, I was oblivious to this music. I had no, I have no idea what it was, but I do remember first hearing like Satin Soul, Barry White, and, and, and My Love Supreme, and all these things. But there were certain songs that stood out, like Everlasting Love. Everlasting Love, that was on the radio. Uh, um, Bad Luck was on the radio. Barry White, uh, First My Last Time Everything, that was on the radio. But it wasn't like it was, it was the radio played those consistently. It was part of, Pop radio it was it, remember it was AM going into FM I think at the time yeah it was like like that kind of stuff so um, I started getting into this and now um, I was in the car we got, they used to get these tapes at um, hair cutting places and it was a place called the Headshed in Sheepshead Bay and um, I was with my older brother and his uh, my my friend and his older brother and he said like wait in the car I'm gonna go get a haircut and uh, he came out and he had that that thing and I was I'm looking at it and all the songs and everything so I was like wow this, this, this shit is good I really really like this cuff yeah, look at that so so he goes in the in the in the in the shop and he used to sell the eight tracks what? okay they have custom mixes and you pick out how much do you know how much they were back then seven dollars five dollars or something you get like twenty one to twenty five songs yeah. on a nonstop played mixed Eight track, right? And what was great about it was, <clears throat> it was the first tapes, like one, two, three, four, and like that. They weren't they weren't done with they weren't they weren't mixed beat mixed because I found out later nobody had headphones. Nobody came up with the thing. Well, you know what? Let's use this and 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 mix the next beat. So they would just like make something and have something in. And guys like Joe Donato and. That Gary Baxter and all those guys that came before me ended up perfecting as the years went by. So, but I do remember a turning point was I think it was tape number eight was the first tape that I heard that actually had beat mixing in it. And when I first heard that, that blew me out of the water. I mean, I was like, what? How did we do that? And now I'm realizing, okay. Uh, you got to have two turntables oh. and you have to be able to play both of them. And I remember going to like a, uh, and, and a Ralphie, did somebody, did you ask somebody anything or you just, this came in your mind? Uh, what it had was, I, I think it, I, I went to, it, it, when we were kids, there was block parties all over Brooklyn. Block parties were, were big. I, you know, that was a type of like, before there was discos, there were block parties. So uh, in the neighborhood, in one summer, there could be 10 block parties. And when you went to a block party, you got not dressed up, but wore a nice shirt. You knew there were going to be girls there. And, and either there was a band, and sometimes there was a DJ. And I'm like, this guy's been here, a DJ. And what he did was he had a stereo amplifier and another stereo amplifier, two speakers, two speakers, and he would play one record from one turntable plugged into one and then play another from there. So that was my first, like, oh, okay, I kind of get it. And then uh, I says, wait, I got to do this myself. I got I got so interested in this. I got to do this myself. And I started working for my father. Um, uh, what what kind of work did your father do? I was going to ask you that. Okay, at, at the time when I started to work, my father had a dry cleaning business in Bensonhurst. And, um, I would, 
help him on the weekends and stuff. I would you know, deliver clothes and, and stuff like that. And then my father would bring the clothes home to the neighborhood, people in the neighborhood. I would, you know, tips like that. I mean, I wasn't making a, a big, big money, but it was something that I kept, you know, kept money in my pocket. And then um, when I was in high school, my father retired because my father got sick. He, he got sick very, very early. He didn't take care of himself. He, my father was like a doctor's. Going to doctors and ended up uh, not being smart, but um, then well, that generation didn't believe in doctors. No, no absolutely not. No. Yeah, no. my grandfather same problem. They didn't want to go. No, why doctor? Get out of here! They would say, "Get <laughs> out of here!" Telling me, "Why you taking this?" No way. the doctor. Just so they would say. Those that remember, knows what I'm talking about. That yep. generation did not think about vitamins. They actually, let me, in fact, let me light a cigarette right now. <laughs> and mind your goddamn business, they would tell you. I got more pictures of me when I was like an infant with my grandfather with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth with an ass like this. I mean, you know, Italian, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's smoking. It's like <laughs> walking through the house is a cloud of smoke. Oh yeah, man! Right. Okay, so you so you're the dry cleaner's son. Yes, okay. yeah, dry cleaner's son. And my and my the name of my father's business was Maddie D. Because my last name is D'Agostino, and I mean to me it's a very easy name to pronounce. But for <laughs> teachers and some people, they would just botch it to the freaking point. I'm like, are you freaking serious? D and oh God, I'll tell you about that. Lad. That also yeah, influenced me calling myself Ralphie D. That was a reason for 